we always think of technology as a set of tools and techniques that expand our abilities. But actually, another way of looking at it is that maybe technology is a life form in itself. And maybe it's not us using technology. Maybe technology is using us to further itself. And initially, we are co-evolving with technology. But uh, at some point, if we don't merge with it, it can potentially overtake us. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my guest today is Somi Arian, tech philosopher, founder of Impeak, and host of the Somi Arian podcast. With Somi, we talk about the role of ethics and philosophy in the age of AI, what the future is going to look like, and how you can stay ahead of the curve in this era of exponential technological innovation. So enjoy this conversation with Somi Arian. Somi, it's a pleasure to have you on Polyweb. Thank you. Thanks for having me, me and uh, Rumi. <laughs> um, I'm really, I don't know, super excited and I'm a bit of a fun girl. You know, I've been following your work uh, and your podcast uh, And I think that what you're building at Impeak is fantastic. Uh, so I'll try not to show too much the fungal side and keep it, you know, very professional. <laughs> the pleasure is mine. The pleasure is mine. All right. So, well, I mentioned already that you, you are the founder of Impeak. You also have your own podcast, which is the Somi Aryan podcast. What maybe is less... Uh, maybe less known about you is that you're actually a tech philosopher and I want to explore more about this aspect uh, during the conversation uh, because as someone that has built you know technology I thought that we could collectively be more prepared uh, when it comes to the products uh, that we build and especially the impacts that it can have uh, in the life of other people and society at large. So I'm curious to know, how can philosophy help us uh, to think more broadly and critically about the products uh, that we create in technology? And maybe you could give us uh, some, some concrete example of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny you say that it's a less known fact because Uh, actually, way before I got into blockchain, you know, I was writing about AI. And uh, in my 2019 book, it's all about AI. It's called, the, it's called Career Fear and How to Beat It. And it's all about, you know, how technology is changing the future of humanity. I studied philosophy of science and politics, political philosophy and, 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 and technology at St. Andrews University. I was doing a PhD And I ran out of money. I had to hand in my thesis a little bit earlier. And, and that's why I ended up with two masters instead. So philosophy has been a, a very big part of my life. And what really always has interested me is the idea that I think that technology is a life form in itself, possibly, you know, this is my conjecture. We always think of technology as a set of tools and techniques that expand our abilities. We think of, you know, the official kind of definition of technology is tools and techniques that enhance our abilities. But actually, another way of looking at it is that maybe technology is a life form in itself. 
And maybe it's not us using technology. Maybe technology is using us to, you know, to further itself. And and we are initially we are you know co-evolving with technology, but uh, at some point it's likely that it will overtake us. So if we don't merge with it, uh, you know, it can it can potentially overtake us. So you, yeah, go ahead. Can you maybe elaborate on what you mean by technology being a, a life form itself? So if you if you think about you know all the many ways that life expresses itself you know like you know goes back to this idea of what is life uh, so so Schrodinger this famous uh, physicist he, he uh, tried to write a, he, I mean he tried to kind of explain what life is and i think by far it's one of the best definitions of what what life is and i talk about it in my book which basically he says that essentially since the beginning of the big bang the uh, universe has been going towards a state of maximum entropy so it started at minimum entropy and and then it's is gone towards you know more and more entropy and in the process of this going towards maximum entropy random particles the joint forces they they get together and they create these clusters and 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 these clusters they try to overcome that entropy so they try to you know slow down the entropy but the and that's called life that's what life is okay but the, the the irony is that in the process of trying to slow down entropy they they actually slow down entropy in their vicinity but actually they speed up entropy outside of their circle so if you think about you know when we try to bring order to our house you know we clean up but what what does clean up mean you clean up your house it means that you take you know all the mess in your house and you put it in a bin and then the bin is taken out of your house and but then that that trash goes into the outer environment so we are we are doing that you know that so what life is is a constant um you know groups of inner circles that each time this entropic kind of waste is taken and, and, and put out into the outer circle. And then uh, that outer circle then has to push it into the outer circle, right? That's what life is, right? So if you think about that, so so technology, it appears that, you know, it's a, when I say technology is a life form in itself, technology is enabling this and it's a form of experience, right? So so it's, 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 it's perceivable that maybe that that process itself is the means, right? Like, it, sorry, is the end because we see it as a means to an end, but maybe that is the end. That that process itself is, you know, is a form of experience, is a form of, you know, the universe experiencing itself, and and it's just one life form among others. So there's there are many many life forms, and and if you think about what a life form is. It's this, a life form is where we are taking, we are basically trying to slow down entropy. That's what life is. So that's, that's in a nutshell, how I think of, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit abstract, but I I, I love thinking about these stuff. Uh, Like I have uh, like so many rabbit holes right now that we can dig into, but if, uh, as you mentioned, like technology is, uh, 
a way for the universe to express itself, to think of itself, right? And this process of also slowing down entropy. So what are the challenges uh, that you see right now, you know, in this era of uh, exponential technological transformation that we are living, where the rate of acceleration between uh, a technological breakthrough and the other is getting shorter and shorter, used to take years, to have a technological break, breakthrough. Then we got into months now, right? If not days, you know, between uh, the evolution and the other. So where are we going with this? And how can this process not run, run us, you know, but work for us? Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily know whether it's possible to let it not run us and work for us. I don't I don't know necessarily that may be possible. The truth is that we didn't think about these things. I mean, I thought about it, but but the people who should have thought about it or or uh, you know <laughs> incorporated it the the kind of guardrails that we would have wanted to have to save humanity. These things they have been talked about for a long time, but nobody paid attention to them. It, it may be too late, you know, I think this is the biggest debate right now and we knew this was coming. But again, it depends on from whose perspective you're looking. Are you looking from the perspective of, you know, if, if you if we were, you know, if you think about if we were the monkeys and, uh, you know, humans were coming along and they were going to be a lot, a lot more efficient, a lot better in many ways. It's too bad for the monkeys, but it was good for the humans, right? So, so in a similar way, I think it, it just looks at, it depends on from whose perspective you're looking at. From the perspective of the universe, it's just another step in evolution. If it means that, okay, let me take a, take a step back. So Ray Kurzweil, who wrote The Singularity is Near, you know, he puts it in a, in a very interesting way. He says that this, evolution that we are going through is bigger than when we went from reptiles to mammals. Yeah, so so it's happening faster, much faster, and it's bigger than when we went from reptiles to ma- mammals. I mean, that's a big statement and and we know that every time one huge, you know, evolutionary uh leap like that happens, the ones you know the the, the creatures that are from the previous iteration, so to speak, either they go instinct or they become irrelevant, a little bit like monkeys, right? So like monkeys, they didn't go extinct, but they um, kind of became irrelevant, right? Like they're they're not running the world. So the, the, the fate of humans is likely to be the same unless we merge with this technology. Right, like and you know specifically with AI, unless we merge with it and we become part AI essentially, and I think this this is going to happen very quickly. I think we will we'll probably see some of it in our lifetime, and I think in the next couple of generations, like there, yeah, it's 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 just going to be very interesting. You, you know, uh, part of it is also it's a question of how much of the how much there is a need for physical experience like how much how much of our physicality do we need to maintain you know there is a 
an amazing is that I, I really like, uh, and I've had him on my podcast called Donald Hoffman. He's written a book called The Case Against uh, Reality. So Donald Hoffman, basically, he's saying that the experience that we have now is not a physical experience anyway, right? He's like that this is a headset and we are, and, and he's got very interesting mathematical, half of it goes uh, over my head, but he's got a very interesting way of putting it that, that potentially we are not living a physical life anyway. This is this is just a, a a very sophisticated virtual reality headset. If that is the case, if if there's even a shred of of truth to that, then our merging with AI is it's got to be pretty smooth, I think. And yeah, like. It's a deep question. I don't know necessarily whether it's falsifiable falsifiable at this moment. I don't know if there is a way that we can prove or disprove that, but I think we will soon have the ability to do that. What makes you think that we might be living uh, at this very moment in in a simulation? I don't think it's a matter of belief, because if it's a belief, then it becomes religion, right? I don't know if it's a matter of belief. I think it's a matter of, you know, it's a theory. It's a theory and it's a it's a possibility. It's both a philosophical and, you know, I'm not a physicist, so I can't tell you from a physics perspective necessarily, but I know physicists and, and mathematicians that have thought about it deeply. And philosophically, it kind of makes sense and, and it's a possibility. It's a, it's a very strong possibility that this is potentially a, we are living already in a simulation. Okay. Now we go into the, into like uh, maybe the fantasy realm, but what is it on the other side of this simulation? If indeed this is a simulation, right? I don't know. No, it's kind of like, you know, the way that Donna Hoffman puts it is that, you know, kind of like trying to, to try and say what is, on the other side, it almost doesn't make sense because it's a little bit like if you look at a a video game on on your computer, if you try to see what's behind it, you go into the computer. You're really just going into the to the computer, right? Like there is no such thing as anything behind it, right? So so it, it, it's entirely possible that that the entire experience of life is one simulation. In, in another simulation. And I wonder, I think that this race to, you know, artificial intelligence becoming uh, as powerful as it, it's becoming, it could help us solve that. It could potentially help us, you know, tap into that. So, so maybe, uh, you know, maybe we could find a way to, to get to the source code of this simulation that we are in. Doesn't mean that we will figure out the next layers but if there there are next layers, but at least we will figure out what what this this life is. There are there are a couple of things that you mentioned in your previous answers that I would like to go back to. One thing that you talk about is the merging between uh, humans and, and AI. But between this merging and where we stand right now, I think there are a few evolutions that needs to take place. What's your perspective in the way that we start from here, where we are right now, to 
you know, ultimately uh, be merged uh, with AI. Yeah. And what what are the challenges that we will need to face along this along the way? Yeah, so that's why I, I call myself a transition architect. You know, in my book, I talk about the concept of transition architecture. I think that the role of, you know, people who are able to stay at the uh, cutting edge of this technology is to then help other people get comfortable. And, and you know, I've been talking about these things for a very long time, but people didn't really think of it you know, on a daily basis. It's only since ChatGPT4 that people are like, okay, this is like something is real happening and and people are starting to take it seriously. In terms of what we can do, the most important thing is really stay up to date with it. You know, stay up to date with it, learn it, use it, think about it deeply, take it seriously. You know, I go to bed thinking about it. I wake up thinking about it. And my goal has always been, how do we, maximize happiness and minimize suffering in this process. That's what it is. That's what transition architecture is, is to try and help other people to go from one transition to another while maximizing happiness and minimizing suffering. Because it is going to be um, challenging because it's like any other change. Every time there's there's change, there is uh, there are challenges. And this is something that we have to be prepared for because in the past you had tens of years, maybe ten, you know, decades. You had decades. Sometimes you had centuries. So, for example, from the first fueling mill to the industrial revolution, it was like several hundred, a few hundred years. And then from first industrial revolution to the second, it was much shorter. From second to third, it was much shorter. From third to fourth, which is from digital revolution to Artificial intelligence is even shorter. So it's, it's just getting, and, and next one is going to be quantum computing, and then it's going to be nanotechnology, right? So, so it's just going to get faster and faster. And the best thing that you can do is to stay educated, to stay on top of it, learn it, and keep an open mind and, and like see how can you find, find your place in it, right? So to find your place in, in the world. And be yeah. ready for the fact that you have to constantly move, right? So like Yuval Noah Harari talks about this, that he's like, you know, in the past, our identities were like a house, you know, it was like a found you had a strong foundation, it was like a house, but now it's more like a tent. So you need to be ready to constantly take this tent, close it, and then, you know, open it up in the next station, right? So you're constantly moving. How is identity, like going back to Arari, mm -hmm. I, I read the book. This was, I think, Homo Deus, right? Homo Deus, um, yeah. Yeah. So staying on that lane, how can one rethink identity and purpose, meaning in the age of AI and continuous disruption and innovation? I think it's like, uh, look, Purpose is something that everybody has to define for themselves, same as identity. You know, like I think of myself as a tech philosopher and, an, and a transition architect. That's my identity. You know, everybody has to define it for themselves. Like that's my purpose. My purpose is to help this transition happen in a smooth, as smooth as possible way, right? This, this, what, whatever this transition is, we, I feel like we're going through a 
a transitionary period, there's a, you know, I feel like there's, that's my purpose. I'm here to, to help with that. So I think everybody has to define it for themselves. Like, you know, so some, someone's purpose might be something else. It could be that to, you know, raise children that will make a contribution or, you know, or, or maybe they just want to just be happy or, you know, everybody, everybody has a different, different purpose and identity for themselves. Right. But that's something that you have to define for yourself. So in my, in my book, actually, I talk about this. There's a chapter called knowing yourself and there's another chapter called finding your place in the world. And, and it's these two things. So you need to understand your personality traits, and then you need to understand how you find your purpose or your kind of mission in the world. To me, that is, it's not a, it's not about the end. It's about the means itself, the journey itself. Is there anything that helped you define for yourself, uh, you know, your identity and your purpose? And how are you reinventing your, your identity and your purpose, uh, you know, to keep up uh, with the changing of the technological landscape? I, I reinvent myself every day, every single day. You know, like it's, it's not, you know, like I've already changed so much in the past, like uh, even the past year, even the past month, I'm constantly changing. Right. So I meditate, you know, that is, that's something that helps think deeply, go for walks, you know, try to just like calm, calm my mind. And it almost feels like, you know, you're kind of like downloading the information. It's, I feel like. You know, I used to think like when I was, when I was in Iran, I grew up in Iran. Um, I used to think that, you know, it, living in Iran, there are many reasons why you could go to prison because, you know, if you're against the government, if you do, if you have your hair out a little bit, you know, if you're like, you know, not, not fully dressed the way that uh, they want you to dress. So many reasons you could go to prison for holding hand to, you know, with, with, the opposite sex or you know to go to a party or anything i used to think that if for any reason i ever ended up going to prison there you know whatever happened i could just be in a room with no books and i could still grow like i could just like be in a in a prison cell and still grow i think i think there's just like so much that it, it makes me think a lot about chat gpt and how it's learning you know, I just feel like we are, we have so much knowledge that is within us. We, and we can, you know, we can just learn even without anything. Like it, it just, just, just by thinking, you know, some people call it wisdom, you know, just by thinking or meditating, it just, just comes. I also want to circle back, uh, Around another thing that you said uh, before, that was related to when you were talking about uh, people that build technology, you know, and the impact uh, that these have. Uh, you said something along the line that the people that should have thought about it uh, should have done so, you know, already a while back and now it might be too late. But so as someone who has built technology, like for, for, uh, for context, I'm a product manager. Okay, so, and I used to make, you know, the calls, uh, what, what do we build versus what we don't build, right? Uh, 
And and the way that we make those calls is, uh, okay, is it aligned with the company strategy? Is it aligned with the OKR for my product, uh, which stands for uh, uh, objective and key results, right? Is it what our, what our users want? But we never really think more broadly about the consequences uh, that our decision have. And, and I really do believe that people that work in tech today have much more power than what we give them credit for. I think it's very understated how much power do they have. Sometimes more power than even an elected politician, because simply what they build is on a global scale, whereas, you know, politicians operate on a national border level, right? And technology is so much more pervasive. But at the same time, we don't have the tools. Uh, no one trains us uh, to understand really what are the consequences behind the, beyond the impact on the company bottom line, right? So I wonder how can people that work in tech and build products could be trained? Which are the type of questions that we should ask ourselves when we build technology? I mean, the truth is that it's too late, you know, like the technologies have been built already. It's now going into an acceleration phase and the decisions should have been made by people who were building it maybe several years ago. And one of the issues here is that the majority of our technologies are built with very, it, it's kind of based on Western male logical thinking, which is very Apollonian. You know, in Nietzsche, I, I studied Nietzsche. I, I'm a Nietzschean as a philosopher. You know, he's got this concept of the birth of tragedy and it's about the Apollonian and the Dionysian, you know, gods you know, and ways of thinking and uh, and for for millennia even even religion itself is apollonian you know so it's it's focused on form logic it doesn't leave much room for the kind of intangibles that that really bring balance to that apollonian kind of way of thinking and i always think of the Dionysian as more like female and Apollonian as more like male way of thinking. And also I would say maybe uh, Dionysian is a little bit more like almost like Eastern, you know, and, and Apollonian is a little bit more, more Western. So none of this is, is a, you know, it's like, it's not like clear cut, you know, it, it's just like roughly speaking. And, um, and for, for millennia, we have suppressed our Dionysian side and we have really given a lot of value and focus to, to our Apollonian side. And the technologies that we have developed as a result are very Apollonian. And, and, and I think it might be too late to change that. I think that that's what is being built into to our artificial intelligence. There might be a small window because there is this acceleration phase, it could be that within the next five years, we could bring in as much Dionysian, you know, balance to this 
technology that that might help. And I don't know exactly what that looks like. I just know that when you are in it, you know, if you, if you have an opportunity to be one of the builders, and that's why I'm I'm building, you know, Impeak. You know, if you have the opportunity, if you get the funding, if you get the, you know, the the a seat at the table, you can bring that flavor and and some level of of balance to it. But in in general, I think. Every person has to become almost a f- philosopher in addition to being you know, a builder, a coder, a product manager, a- and question things and think deeply about things and you know, inject a level of critical thinking and contextual creativity, mindfulness, you know, and um, emotional intelligence. These are the four human skills that I talk about in the book. And they, we need to bring those things to whatever it is that we build. But whether the question is like, okay, let's say you are working in a, in a large corporation and you are a product manager, whether you can change the course of history, probably not. But there have been people who have done that type of thing. You know, there was this guy called Frederick Taylor, who I think in, in, in the 1900. He was basically a manager in a company and he was the person who created the whole concept of scientific management theory, you know, and the entire way that we still run our companies, the way that people come into the company, they they, they have a start time, they have a end time, the way we pay people by the hour. That's still based on what Frederick Taylor came up with, you know, at that time. And, and he started out as a manager. So that one person that really impacted. And there was a time that that worked really well. It's, it doesn't work really well anymore, you know, and, and we are figuring out that that doesn't really apply to the modern workspace, right? Or, or, or the whole concept of work is changing. So, so when it comes to, we need people who can rethink these things they can rethink what it what it means to work, what it means to to find purpose. So one of the things that I think we will find purpose is in communities, and that's why I'm really interested in Web three because I think that Web three is there. There are ways that people can find meaning in digital ownership, in digital assets development. You know, building businesses, building communities around it, and this is one of the things that I find interesting about Web three, for example. Yeah, let's stay maybe in Web three and talk about EMPIC uh, and what you're building. I have a couple of questions here. The first one being, uh, you mentioned just now that as someone that, you know, also builds technology, you know, whenever you're building something, you can inject, uh, you know, this uh, new type of thinking uh, in, in whatever it is that you're doing, right? So I wonder how do does this manifest uh, in Impeak, what are the questions that you ask yourself in the way you're building your company and how, what's the impact, the change that you want to have in the world? I'm building a, a platform that will enable creators to build communities and, and to, build, to build communities and to make a living from, you know, from that directly with their communities. So, so there, there will be a, a sense of co-ownership. There could be a sense of, you know, it's, it's different to the way that we build communities in, in Web2. In Web2, you don't really build a community, you build an audience. So I think that 
Web3 is where you can actually build a community and you can you can build it in a way that your token holders, for example, that they also share in the, um, you know, the good things that that happens as that that company grows, right? As, as that business grows, it can be in the form of rewards. It can be in the form of experiences, you know, but I think there are many ways that we can get creative with digital assets and, and creating experiences. So it's not something that I necessarily personally created in the sense of like I didn't invent this. It's an evolution. It's a simple evolution. You know, if you think about Web three, Web one, you know, or before Web one, before the internet, marketing or or advertising or building, you know, a company was a broadcast. You would have to go, to, you know, you would have to spend a lot of advertising dollars, spend money like that to build. Then after the internet, it became a dialogue. So it was a broadcast, then it became a dialogue. Now it's dialogue and ownership. So that's what that's what I'm hoping to contribute to. I heard you in a um, couple of your podcasts and especially like comes to mind the episode that you recorded with Kevin Rose. You were talking about the business models in Web3. And in particular, you were talking about... Uh, the the royalty system in in this space i wonder since then how has your idea evolved when it comes to business models and what do you see being the biggest challenge or perhaps also the biggest opportunity in this area i would say that the biggest challenge is that the is that the fact that tokens are tradable and transferable makes it very complicated to create a sustainable business model that will help cre- uh, create a, a recurring revenue for a business. So, so the whole concept of maybe we need to rethink recurring revenue itself, but for a business to be sustainable so that it can pay its team and, and expand and build things, there needs to be some form of recurring revenue. The problem is that in in web3 people are selling, you know, like a large amount of tokens and it's a little bit like a kickstarter campaign basically. And then they would if the if it's a successful sale and if it's a big enough thing that it gives them a large amount of capital and then the the uh, builders expect to still have recurring revenue uh, while the the, the buyers are expecting for the price of their tokens to go up and people come in at different price points. So I would say that in a, in a nutshell, the problem of Web3 is that, they are, that, that there's a mismatch between the expectations of profit, essentially, which is why, you know, some, some people, some regulators are suggesting that these are maybe securities. So the, the problem, the truth is that it's just like it, there's a mismatch. There's a discrepancy between the expectations of the holders and the need of creators. So that's the biggest problem. So that's something we need to solve. It, it's, it's in, in, a, in one word, it's the hyper-financialization. So that's a problem. It, it, it can be a good thing if it's managed well. 
But like anything else, when there is money involved, it creates an, a type of game theory that, you know, and the problem with game theory is that in the end, most of the time, everybody loses. Yeah, it's a uh, zero-sum game most of the time. Yeah, because because even if financially the the community or that the creator is successful, the holders will end up being unhappy unless the price is constantly going up. And it's impossible to maintain that. I wonder often about that, about the sustainability and, uh, you know, the the tokens. Like, if you think about it, so token holder end up becoming sort of, well, sort of, they are basically investors, uh, you know, in the project. But the problem is that most people are not VCs. They are not trained to wait for a return, you know, and they want immediate return. So I wonder, have you thought of a way or found a solution for this type of dilemma you know keeping the community involved okay it's very difficult it's something i'm working on yeah it's something i'm working on and we are going to test a number of things one option is that the token that you buy is is not the membership itself but it's something that gives you the right to get a membership at a lower price or something like that or you get a certain amount of time free and then after that you know you make a small contribution instead of you know right now it's like people have to sell so that you get a royalty and that's why and then people don't want to pay royalty right so so no i don't have a solution for it yet it's something i'm working on and we are going to test different models but i don't think anybody has a solution for it yet. no it's very difficult and i think that the testing approach perhaps that, that you want to implement is you know see what works is the right path So I mean, maybe we can do around you at one point when you, you know, you finish your testing, you find the, the solution for this dilemma. But in the meantime, I really want to thank you so much for, for being here. Um, it has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I appreciate that. Cheers. All right. And for listeners, see you next time. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.